0: Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for yet another hour of power here on oh, I don't know, every podcast platform I can possibly get myself on. I'm sure if you are listening to this right now, well, you're connected. So also, of course, we have video on YouTube. All right, guys, this week I have special guest Janice Silby. Hi, Janice.
1: Hi, thanks for
0: having me. Absolutely. Now, Janice is, and let me read this so I make sure I get this right, is a Canadian registered professional counselor and she specializes in religious trauma counseling.
1: Yeah, That's definitely my area of special interest because I have religious trauma syndrome myself, so I'm intimately acquainted with it.
0: Fair enough, I definitely am counting tracking on that. I In fact, it's interesting talking with um, therapists, you know, psychologists um, in this area, or in this field of, You know, the the stuff I talk about, we talk about, you know, in terms of cult recovery or extremist groups or high control groups, so often we are also survivors of an experience.
1: Yes. Yeah, definitely. It uh, gave me motivation. Once I was able to extricate myself from the group and from all that thinking that went along with it, I was so motivated to figure out what just happened. How did I spend 40 years of my life (laughs) believing so wholeheartedly these things that I believed. Uh, and then as I started researching uh, cults and how, how cultic thinking works and happens, um, I started feeling sickeningly familiar and recognizing that I had definitely uh, succumbed to some of those techniques as well.
0: Right. Yeah, they're, um, they're tricky, crafty stuff, you know, because you start once you start learning about this, so you see it all over, you see it all around, you know. In fact, you might see it too much. I have seen that too, right? Even where it doesn't really exist, um, you know, because because intent has a lot to do with it, and patterns of behavior mm-hmm. have a lot to do with it, you know. And everybody can have a bad day and and mm-hmm. screw up, um, but if you have a you know recurring pattern of behavior, then you're then you're approaching you know the really nasty stuff mm-hmm. that we don't like mm-hmm. to experience, and that's so you know, true.
1: Yeah, and what I find um, is if if I'm having or someone else is having a really visceral response to having their ideology threatened or their belief threatened, then we know that they are so deeply and firmly attached to it. Their identity is probably enmeshed with that and there's no room for objectivity.
0: Exactly, exactly. And because then what happens, of course, is when you attack or criticize or comment on in any way negatively the subject matter the thing that you're talking about the person associates it with them they, they can't help but personally in other words you know yes for sure. Ah, good stuff well let's um let's go ahead and talk about a few things because i wanted to you you are focusing on as a counselor on religious trauma and you know, not all cults or high control groups or extremist groups that I talk about are religions, but then again, a lot of them are. And um, so we can talk intelligently about internet cults and about non-religious cults, but I think we're gonna focus today most on mostly on the religious side. And I think I'd like to also, just cause I usually put my sort of conditionals or sort of, okay, here's what we're doing, here's what we're not doing today. At the, I try to put that stuff at the top of the episode so people will understand what, you know, from the get-go here, what we're trying to do, and the, the intent of this interview is not to bash religion as a topic. However, I think you and I will both agree that religion as a topic has been the cause in many instances of abusive behavior, traumatic behavior, even PTSD episodes, right? Things that leave people with PTSD, complex PTSD. So so religion can bring this about, can bring about behavior that is abusive and traumatic. And would you agree with that?
1: Yes, I definitely would. And when we're talking in terms of religious trauma syndrome, um, it's a matter of the losses that you incur as a result of being part of a fundamentalist group. And then the losses, the double whammy, the losses you incur again upon leaving the group. And suddenly you're no longer part of the community, but that's only just one of the losses there. That's right. And For sure with religion, a lot of people are actually raised in it, born in it, raised in it, and it has definitely permeated American culture, not quite so much in Canadian, but uh, in American culture. Absolutely. That's it's hard to escape.
0: Oh, very much so. I mean, it's I don't I, I don't have hard figures on this, but I believe we're still in the range of three out of four Americans identifying as Christian and a great percentage of them identifying as evangelical. Which is not necessarily reflective of extremist hardcore, not not all evangelicals fit that bill, but you're moving in that direction when you start talking on the spectrum of of intensity of belief and and thereby on that intensity scale, sort of the intensity of the behavior that results from that belief.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, happily though one of the fastest uh, growing (laughs) groups in that demographic is the nuns it's the rise of the nuns as more and more people are coming to their senses and recognizing okay i actually don't want to be a part of this this isn't working for me anymore or you know it isn't true so yeah that group is growing
0: Exactly. And we're not talking about the nuns, the you know, the the Catholic nuns and you know, penguin outfits, right? We're talking about n O N E nuns. I have no religious beliefs or spiritual, not religious, you know, as part of this camp. And I think that's really, if we break it down from what I've seen, that's the part that's growing more so than the absolute nuns, you know, the absolute anti-theists are not really what's on the rise, but a decline for sure in belief sets that are connected with organized religions. People are moving away from structured, organized faiths.
1: Yes, and I have been poking around, asking some uh, interesting questions on Facebook and Twitter um, about people's journey when they have decided to, as I say, divorce religion, when they've decided to leave religion. Um, Lots of them don't become atheists. Many of them... uh, start exploring new age and eastern Mm -hmm. religions that is extremely extremely common they they feel like it's a way for them to still maintain a sense of spirituality or connection to some kind of god or maker creator or whatever um but actually then a lot of them do poke around hang around in there for a while and then also make their way out of that so it's a very individual journey but there are definitely a lot of uh, similarities that people go through
0: yeah, for sure. Do they tend to, in your conversations with them? Do they tend to be cognizant or aware of the fact that that um, that there's still a personal spirit, like like yeah, I guess it's spiritual, or there's still some personal journey that they're 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 looking for something. There are still emotional needs there that are that are trying to be fulfilled. I only bring this up because there are many in that I've spoken with or, or where I may I should say a few of people I've spoken with anecdotally over the years who, you know, go zero go 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 um, from a hundred to zero. They they leave their religion and then it's nothing. They're just nope, nope, I'm fine. I got nothing, I don't have no more needs. I don't need the church, I don't need the spiritual community, I don't need the the sociality. I'm just I'm fine. And I, I've always kind of wondered at that because I, it, it strikes me, common sense wise, that that, you know, instinctively I feel that would be the minority of people, that that most people would still have emotional needs of some kind that they're trying to fulfill. What's your experience with that?
1: There's a tremendous amount of grief that goes along with um, divorcing religion or walking away from cherished beliefs. I mean, I was raised and I was born into a Pentecostal um, household. And and then I became even much more fundamentalist uh, when I married and had children and I wore a head covering and I didn't have TV, didn't wear makeup, didn't even wear my wedding ring, was entirely consumed with trying to live a very holy um, life and to raise my daughters accordingly. So I became more and more distant from the rest of Um, society and it was completely my identity I was a fundamentalist Christian homeschooling wife and mother that was who I was and so when I when I stepped away from religion other aspects of that also began to dissolve it's like pulling on that (laughs) string on the sweater and it just unravels and um, it was very painful and I didn't know anyone else who was Going through what I was going through. I didn't know anyone else who had been as committed um, in their beliefs as I was. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a painful time walking away from that. And there was a lot of grief. So it took me years to get to the point that I could say I was not a Christian and then more years after that to move from agnostic to what I now consider as an agnostic atheist or just plain atheist, but it was not a a fast um, transition and I had to do a lot of introspective work.
0: Interesting, interesting, Um, and I think that is probably a lot more of the common experience that people have. You know, is is that I I I kind of did go 100 to zero, but then I bounced. (laughs) So there was a little boing, you know, a little bit to it over time as I, you know, kind of. Well, when you find out in a very short period of time. The real stark, harsh realities of the cult you've been part of, right? Me and and you know the L. Ron Hubbard and all the lies and deceit and all that, and the le- and the and the intense level of commitment. I mean, the monk level of commitment I had as a Sea Org member, full time, twenty four seven. This is what I do. To to bounce out of that, and then within a couple months, learn all the truth about it. You know, there was a very. You know, I, it is, I don't think it's a surprise or anything too weird that I that I had such a bounce out of that Scientology headspace into okay, there's nothing. But it was really, actually, as I think about it though, more. I think maybe it was more of a not that there is a, asserting that there is nothing, but a, just an absolute. I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know, and I and I and maybe I'll spend the rest of my life trying to find out. Mm-hmm. you know yeah. how about that as a as a as a response to popping out of these religious headspaces you ever- I love that I think that's just
1: uh, fantastic it's always better to be in a state of uh, I don't know because it's much closer to the truth I don't know I have a lot of ideas about things but there are some things not only do I not know but actually nobody else knows either even though they like to pretend they know um, right. yeah so I think that's that's a healthy state to be in the danger of course that we run into which i think you are maybe alluding to is that we can leave our fundamentalist group behind but we can still take fundamentalism with us wherever we go we can so if we become new age we can become like totally die hard new age this is the only way Uh, or whatever else it is it can happen uh, in the spheres of politics nutrition ecology because we are human, we are prone to extremes. That's just the way it goes. I feel like I, my life is spent constantly searching for the middle. And damn it, sometimes it is hard to find the middle. And sometimes I don't want to be in the middle because it feels more familiar to be in extreme territory. And so it also involves recognizing what aspects of your belief system were um, kind of really tied in with your personality as well, because my personality tends to be extreme. And I was raised by a quite a volatile um, religious narcissist. And so we had to become familiar with rules in our home, lots of rules. So guess what? I became comfortable with rules and I gravitated towards rules.
0: There we go. Exactly. The personality thing, I wanted to jump on that because I completely agree with you. I think that... I think there there's lots of different there's probably lots of different systems. I mean, I know we got, you know, the Jungian and all that. I'm just I'm just getting into this stuff and I'm kind of really really enjoying learning certain aspects of this that I've known about or sort of known the existence of or have read a little bit about in some cases, read a lot about in other cases, but the stuff I'm talking about is the new stuff I'm learning is very exciting to learn about, and one of those things is that there are different models of personality types and, thing, you know, ways of looking at how people are and um, and why they act the way they do. That's the question I always come back to. How come people act the way they do, you know? Why do people think the way <laughs> they do? It's
1: fascinating.
0: Yeah, those are the two questions that I am always on about in my own, in my own mind, as I'm thinking about thinking and I'm thinking about why people behave the way they do, you know? Um and I and I think this personality thing is a thing and I wanted to add the reason I'm kind of highlighting this is I wanted to ask you in terms of counseling when when you see, you know when people come out of a high control group or a cult or you know a, or an ex, you know extreme religious group, let's say, um, where trauma has occurred and this is why I connect those dots. I'm not trying to say all religion is traumatic, but you're seeing people who, have had traumatic religious experiences. So, you know, so that's why we're talking about this. So in these cases, you know, religious, extremist religious folks are often known to other people by their their anger, their, their, their determination, their certainty, their like, you know, their and, and the and the moral certainty and all that how much of that do you see carry over after they leave those groups you know that they are that they are just part of that personality package where they've lost okay i don't believe in jesus anymore but they're still just as you know as they were when they were part of the religious group and 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 do they even recognize that that could be a problem or should be something they should be dealing with
1: i won't say that i that a lot of those folks find their way to me if they still have a real (laughs) um, attitude of certainty or whatever they probably are like oh i'm fine i don't i don't need uh, any help um anyways i do um sometimes think that our younger generation that has totally grown up on social media um they have a different view of things, especially so I, we're somewhat older, we're more mature, let's say, we've had more and more experiences in life. And the first half of our life, my life, I won't speak for you, I know you're a young man. Um, <laughs> first half of my life was definitely lived without internet at all, or social right. media at all. Yep. And so... Um, I can tend to back off people, give the benefit of the doubt, allow lots of room, but some folks who've come out of, say, maybe they've left a fundamentalist religion, um, and uh, they don't like something that you've said, so they're busy policing you. They're watching what you type on Twitter or listening to what you say, and then they believe it's their duty to come after you with, guns of blazing to hold you accountable, which is very, that's a very religious mindset. And it's a real, sometimes an, an air of superiority, self-righteousness, whatever phrase you want to use for it, but they will use that um, social media, they'll wield it like a club to try and beat you into submission until you say, uh, okay, I'll only do it your way. So how is that different from being in a fundamentalist group or cult? I don't know, because that's what it's like in a fundamentalist group or cult. It's their way or the highway.
0: That's right. That's exactly right. And we also see this kind of behavior, of course, outside of religion. I mean, this is, you know, or... Or we talk about it even when we see it in pseudo-religious ways. I mean, people have—I've done whole podcasts about, you know, is are, are the extreme SJW types, you know, and when you get over to that end of the spectrum, are, is that almost a religion? You know what I mean? With the way that—and that, it's that kind of attitude you were just expressing— That makes people think that because they connect those. They go, wow, who else is like that? Oh, these guys, these really hardcore religious guys are just like that. So, you know,
1: it's the it's the rigidity and the the authoritarianism. um, Yeah, it's very unbecoming (laughs) and it doesn't really make people want to stick around.
0: Exactly. And that's the thing that that upsets me about it is it's, you know, they will take offense at you at, at, at you having a negative reaction to that and assume that you're having a negative reaction to the subject matter that they're talking about rather than the fact. No, it's actually your manners, your mannerisms, your, you know, your lack of etiquette, your lack of empathy, compassion, whatever, for people who don't think like you do. You know, right. is really at the at the end of the day, and we can apply this on the left, the right, politically. But religion doesn't really, you know, in and of itself, it's not a political thing. And you know, we can think about this outside of political paradigms. I think.
1: Right, and again, I it makes me think of um, the degree of attachment that we have to any any ideology so it doesn't have to be religious at all it can be nutritional politics whatever um but when we are holding on to it so tightly that it absolutely defines us then we really there's no room for anyone else in our life there's no room for anyone who doesn't think exactly the way that we think and of course one of the problems um when people go after someone else and they're just gonna like cut them off completely because they don't like that they used a certain word or something like this, then that other person is not given the opportunity actually to step back and pontificate a little bit and consider the actions that they did. And maybe they actually would come to a point of saying, "Huh." yeah, you know what? But it's sure not going to happen in a moment when someone is just like this in their face. We need some breathing space to step back and actually have take some time to be introspective about things.
0: Yeah, exactly. How do you as a counselor approach people who or you know your clients. You have people who are seeing you, and 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 they have, I guess, whatever it is they're aware of that they're trying to deal with, and and then you observe or see these kind of, you know, unthinking, you know, thought-stopping cliches, or you know, their cognitive dissonance just you know goes to the simplest, stupidest conclusions, and that, that's it. God damn it, that's all there is. How do you help people unhinge from that? And can you do it even if they're not? Uh, do you do you try to do it in a in a subtle way, or do you just flat out go? You know, I think there might be something we might want to look at. Or uh, how do you approach this? <laughs>
1: it's it's in my nature when dealing with other people to be as gentle as possible, um, and to use a lot of self deprecating humor and i know that's exactly the way you operate too because i've heard you (laughs) many times um and that way people feel safe to open up and to maybe do some exploring so i really take a very um gentle approach with it and just ask them questions like maybe if they're how can i get them to look at it from another point of view that's not so threatening
0: yeah, you know,
1: the old thing of well, what would you tell your best friend if they were in this situation? Oh, well, I'd tell them to, <laughs> and then it's like, really? Well, would consider that then.
0: <laughs> exactly. You know, those are that's a very good point. Even just getting a little role reversal, a little exter, you know, external point of view. Those are those are good tactics. Because I'm I'm wondering, you know, people listen to this and they have friends and family that they, you know, might run into who you know could be falling into an extremist headspace could be in one or could be coming out of one we have these three stages and all of them could use some assistance you know how do you um advise people assist folks in that way i mean because sometimes you got to do it covertly a little bit you know what i mean you can't just be hey, you're being an asshole, right? You can't just like be open like that much to somebody that way. But how, you know, what, how do you know,
1: yeah. out, if, you know? If you're, if you're on the outside, if it's your loved one who seems to be succumbing to extremist thinking, um, I still would say the same tactic, being gentle, being kind being respectful ask questions ask questions oh what is it exactly that makes you think this is such a good group or what's so appealing to you about this group help me understand and then that way they don't have their you know their defenses up like that they're more likely they'll still be cautious but if you're being respectful about it um they may still open up to you now (laughs) as they keep going and fall deeper and farther into it, which happens a lot of times, um, then I would recommend to those people who are losing loved ones to it, they need to exercise self-care because it's painful to watch. And right now I know in America, particularly families are being split apart by a lot of things that are going on right now. Um, But if you can at all be able to maintain Uh, an opening for dialogue then my hope is once the person does realize that they've been duped that they will at least know that you're a safe person that they can talk to and but that's a tricky fine line because sometimes self-care and self-protection means that for a time you have to step away from those people or you have to put up boundaries that are difficult and painful
0: that's true. That's very true. I don't talk about self care a lot. Um, I think it. I, and I think the. I think the reason why is because of my background, actually. Um, I think so too. Yeah, I think so. I think so because. Um, I mean, I've certainly talked about how I have recovered from the Scientology attitude of work, 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 and all that. I mean, I've talked about my self care, but I don't talk about it in terms of, you know, to, advice to other people about hey, you got to make sure you. You know, I mean, it is self-care is the most important care It is best care, but it's, um, you know, but you got, you got this mission, you know, you got to help these people. It's
1: that, it's that old oxygen mask, you know, falling in Uh, the airplane and you have to put it on yourself first before you put it on your child. And if you, if you have nothing left to give, then you have nothing left to give. So we must take care of ourselves.
0: Good point. Very good point. Hey everyone, no matter what stage of life we're in, there's never been a better time to continue learning. I've certainly found that true with my university experience, and believe it or not, I'm actually taking advantage of the Great Courses Plus app as part of that. I'm studying statistics and found one of the best courses for that topic on this streaming educational platform. And that's what The Great Courses Plus is all about. They have thousands of engaging lectures from top professors and experts. So in addition to statistics, I wanted to let you know about the featured course for this month, The Art of Conflict Management, Achieving Solutions for Life, Work, and Beyond. It may not be obvious, but the fact is that conflict can be extraordinarily useful in building deeper and stronger relationships, whether with your coworkers or your closest friends and loved ones. But only if you have the skills needed to identify and resolve it. That's where I think we could all use some help. The Great Courses Plus offers unlimited learning at a time when we need it most. Without the added pressures of homework or grades, just in-depth learning at your own pace. And it's available anywhere you are, on your phone or tablet or laptop. Join me and sign up for the Great Courses Plus today. Right now, Sensibly Speaking listeners get a free trial of unlimited access. That's access to any and all courses completely free. Don't wait any longer. Sign up today using my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. Sign up today. You know, I wanted to circle back on certainty for a second because um, because this came up a, a second ago, and I think this is such an important point. A- and it speaks to, of course, how I think an attitude that is that is. Practical and necessary, I believe, in dealing with people who are in extremist headspaces or trying to help people recover from extremist headspaces, and that is an attitude about certainty. Um, Scientology, you know, puts itself out there as the science of certainty. Hubbard glommed onto this button real early on, and it's a a powerful, much more than I appreciated until, you know, a couple years ago. It's a very, very powerful button for people, you know, what they are sure of, what they know to be true and beyond question. And everybody's got their things. I mean, there isn't anything, you know, we're all certain of some things, but some people are certain of things that maybe they shouldn't be. And um, so I'm not going to say all certainty is bad, but, but, (laughs) what will you say about this? (laughs)
1: Certainty, security, and order are the big three. That is what humans crave. We, we want it from the time we're little to the time we die. Certainty, security, and order. And this is actually what can allow here. us... Oh, good. <laughs> Take notes. <laughs> um, this can actually allow us to be manipulated. This, this desire, this need, this um, compulsion that we have. We have to... You know, we want to be sure about things. And that's how strong men like your president, um, I mean, the guy who yells the loudest and promises law and order and stuff, directly appeals to the fear that people have when they stop to think about actually how random things are. Because things are very random. And it's a tall order to be comfortable with the randomness that is the human existence so we do crave certainty security and order and we need to be aware that it can that craving can leave us vulnerable
0: yes exactly i think that um i think i think it's it's healthy and necessary to mental health of any kind that we be certain of certain things Uh, Our name, right? Who we are, right? Uh, Our our general location in the world. Um, If we are in love with someone, I think that's something that after time, you know, over time, you can become fairly certain of who your family is. I think that's something you can be relatively, it's never going to change. Your family is always going to be your family, right? So these are things that are not in flux. And that's about where I draw the line <laughs> because-
1: and, and you know, I would say even with those things, even though we want to be certain about those things, I'm, I'm divorced, my family did change. My, who I am, my, you know, that changed. My identity changed when I left religion. And part of, I got divorced partly also was a result of uh, leaving religion. And my partner, my former husband was a minister. Um, so things that I was deeply certain of changed and I didn't want them to change and I didn't try and make them change, but they changed. And then you're really, then becomes a time of tremendous um, opportunity. I mean, I've heard it said that the, the um, Chinese characters for Crisis and Opportunity are the same characters, the same figures. And if you think about it, that is true. With every crisis comes opportunity. And it's when we divorce religion or have any kind of huge unwanted shift in our life, um, we have this opportunity to rebuild.
0: That's a really good point and an interesting one, because leaving religion or recovering from religion, you know, traumatic uh, experiences there, certainly would be described i think by anybody who's experiencing it as a crisis
1: absolutely extremely disorienting and and the tricky part is so you're grieving you have these massive losses the hits keep coming but you still have to go to work every day it's not like if you're if your partner dies or your child or someone you love you do get some time off people recognize you're grieving even if you say i mean i lost my dog or whatever people are extremely sympathetic but if you say i'm having an existential crisis like i don't believe my religion anymore people are like well it's about freaking time you know and they just think it's the same as stopping believing in santa claus which actually is very offensive and hurtful because it is so much more than that my entire identity Revolved around my faith. It informed the way I dressed and the way I spoke and the way I lived my life. So it was a huge, huge loss.
0: That's right. I think anybody who says uh, just to just to poke fun, I think anybody who says that it's uh, that it's you know this should be easy, like uh, like giving up Santa Claus. I, I think they kind of forgot what it was like for them as a five or six year old when they learned that Santa Claus ain't real. I'm pretty sure. That was, that was something that I had to chew on for quite a while as a kid to get my head around, uh, that that was a new reality. And I was not particularly happy or comfortable when they told me about that.
1: <laughs> you know? Yeah, and you know, actually, that's something parents um, might want to think about. If you, if you always want your child to know that you are telling them the truth and that they can trust you, be careful of the things that you present to them as being the truth.
0: That's exactly right. exactly right um yeah don't even get me started on the whole religious education and child abuse thing i've got i can go on a roll on that okay so but like i said i'm really trying to not make this like some kind of anti-religious thing here because religion is necessary and useful in many many places in people's lives and i'm not going to say it's not but the trauma is not necessary not useful and not needed and the neither is the abuse Let's talk a little about you, because we've been talking about professional stuff here. So you've mentioned a few times here that you've, you know, you've had your background with this. What is that? What happened with you?
1: Right. Um, So I grew up, uh, I'm Canadian, so I grew up in Canada in a Pentecostal home. So speaking in tongues and that sort of thing was like normal for me and for my family. My siblings, I'm the youngest of four, my siblings all walked away from the faith in their teen years. And as the youngest, I saw how much that hurt my parents. And I was determined I would never hurt my parents the way that they did. So when I became a teen, I really dug in deeper and um, just became very and meshed, I would say at that point, that's really when it also, uh, the identity and the beliefs meshed together. And part of it was being raised uh, in a home with a narcissistic parent. You you want their love, but you can't get it. It's never actually attainable. So was always trying, you know, am I holy enough? Am I good enough? Well, now I can actually speak in tongues. Now I'm this, now I'm that. And then um, grew up and uh, married a man who was a, a good man, a good person, very religious, of course. And then he went to Bible college, and it was while we were at this very conservative Bible college in, a, in Alberta, um, I started noticing these ladies in the grocery store, and they always had their head coverings on. And I thought, what is that? What is that? And I talked to my husband about it. He said, oh, it's somewhere It's somewhere in the Bible. It's in the New Testament somewhere. And so I started researching, and I decided, yeah, you know what, we were never set free from this uh, obligation where we're told that women should have their heads covered and dress modestly and all this stuff. I was really, truly trying to be a good Christian, and I wanted so to be a good wife and mother. Um, and so I asked him if he would mind if I adopted that um, that way of dressing, and he said, no, that that'll be fine. And I was certainly the only one on the campus and the only one who didn't belong to this closed group of Mennonites. Um, and and so then the Mennonites started seeking me out because they thought it was so interesting and invited me to their church. And church with them was very different. They didn't have any musical instruments. And the men and women sat um, segregated Um and I felt it was so beautiful. It felt so holy. And guess what? More rules. There
0: were more rules that I could follow. Up. So I want to yeah, I, I ask because that's you know it's not been super clear in my head, and and this is my bad. I could I I guess I could Google this, but you you did it. So I'm going to ask you: Mennonites, Amish. I've had these two things confused for a while. What's the what's the difference?
1: I I think. Um, Amish would be like Mennonites on steroids. Like uh, the um, So the, the Mennonites follow Menno Simons. I don't know if, um, if the Amish do, but it's definitely the idea of you're turning your back on the world. But the, the Mennonite group that I fell in with, the Haldeman Mennonites or the Church of God in Christ, they would still have um, like a microwave, And they drove cars, but they would all rip the stereo out of their car to show how holy they were. Like, you better not be keeping that stereo in the car. And the women, they all wore long skirts and dresses, well, long dresses. And they could have flowers on them, but there were rules about the size of the flowers or the pattern. So you could have something, you couldn't have anything like as big as a a loonie or a toonie, that's Canadian coins. And you certainly couldn't have anything as small as a dime but you could have in between those. Otherwise it was too, too gaudy, like people would be trying to pay, pay attention to you. So there were all these extra rules, which I really oh. enjoyed. And then uh, my husband became a pastor. And so we did move away to another province. And while we were there, he said, people think you're weird wearing your head covering. I want you to stop wearing your head covering. Uh, it's creating a barrier in the congregation. And I was very upset by that, I was, because I felt I was sacrificing by wearing a covering. And that year turned out to just be a terrible year of just lots and lots of tragedies, unfortunately, befell our family. Mm-hmm. And then um, it ended with our youngest daughter uh, receiving a life-threatening diagnosis. And then we couldn't actually pay for all the medical help she needed, even though we're in Canada. Um, and so then we went bankrupt on top of everything else. And it was at that point, and my nephew went to prison for murder. Like it was a terrible couple of years and there was no breathing space in between. It was just bang, 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 a total shitstorm raining down on us. Um, and then finally I thought, this cannot be right. I have tried my best to live as holy of a life as, as anybody I, I know and this is how I'm rewarded. And then um, the people in the church weren't, um, I didn't feel that we were receiving a lot of support when our child was like, we were facing a terrible crisis. Um, And so yeah, that allowed me to start um, really thinking I might look elsewhere and it took a lot of courage. I was terrified. I remember walking across the street to the bookstore the used bookstore and I went by myself and they had this this corner in the back and it was covered with a curtain and it said occult and alternative religious books like this is in the in the early 2000s late 90s I was like Ooh, okay I gotta go back there and I pull open the curtain of waiting for the lightning to strike and there was a lightning and I just took my time my heart was pounding and I found a book that seemed like uh, not terrifying. It was going to be comparing and contrasting religion and Buddhism, Christianity and Buddhism, and Islam. So I take the book to the counter and truly ask the lady to put it in a brown paper bag because I did not want anyone seeing. I didn't want my kids to see it. I didn't. And I went home and I stuck it in my underwear drawer because I knew even God would not look in my underwear <laughs> drawer. And it took me probably another week to get comfortable with the idea that book was in my house was in my dresser and I was going to read to start reading that book so when no one else was around I would start reading it but that's how great my fear and concern was and yet I felt I had to do it I had to be setting myself free I, I had been on the wrong horse somehow and then I started discovering some new age um, books and teaching and then I really dove to that and grew my dreadlocks and got ohm tattoos and went to yoga and I could adjust oh. your chakras, you know, just Whoa, really.
0: really out of bounds. What did your family think of all this?
1: Uh, my kids were relieved. They decided new mom was a lot more fun than. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How old were your kids at this point?
1: Um, I think 10 and 12.
0: But, oh, yeah, they but it, didn't, this.
1: <laughs> it, it wasn't overnight, like it was still it was still a, a process. But yeah, I definitely started easing up on a lot of things. And then eventually I did have to talk to them about it because I couldn't, you know, just couldn't keep it secret. And the, the marriage also, unfortunately, was unraveling at that point. So there were a lot of stressors um, yeah. that were going on. Um, and I mean, and thankfully,
0: must have been a, a point of no return. I mean, wow, that's quite different.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And and my ex-husband, the, the father of my kids, he's just a great guy. He's a really good person. And he he has also extricated himself also from the belief system. And we've been able to build such a lovely friendship now that we're not married and don't have these expectations and demands on each other he is the first one i call when something goes wrong or something goes right it's a really nice relationship to have and and he feels the same
0: that's great i mean it's it's also so rare yeah yeah comparatively you know which is which is good though i mean that's that's actually really that's that's great any um Since we're on the topic and since we are talking about, you know, those recovery and stuff, how'd you do that? Mm. (laughs) Because I imagine there was quite a bit of acrimony when this was all going on.
1: I think we were so, we were numb because it had been already a year or two of all these different tragedies Mm. happening and his ministry fell apart. Like just, it was... So he was in a depression. I was in a depression. There was a lot going on, but we were never we were never unkind to each other. We have extremely different. Um, the only reason we actually married was because of religion. That was our commonality. So when I didn't believe anymore, that made it tricky to stay together. And then there were other things too like I realized I had been so trapped in that way of thinking my whole life there was exploring that I wanted to do. I I wanted to explore who I was sexually. And that's another thing I told you when people leave um if they leave evangelicalism a lot of times then they're they'll go into new age stuff exploring eastern religions but also for many of them there comes a profound time of exploring Um, sexuality their own sexuality um, monogamy versus polyamory like all these different things Um, so my hope is that I can potentially at least have them really thinking about these instead of just oh you know I'm a teenager again I can do all these things because I did do all those things I tried there's like nothing I didn't try basically Um, so if I can help people be thoughtful and have some idea about what might be coming next or other things that issues that might be presenting themselves, um, then, you know, we can maybe mitigate some damage, but still allow people to fully explore who they are and who they want to be.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, that's so funny. There's so many things you've been, you, you, you've said here that I, I mean directly, directly can relate to my own experience. With this stuff, you know, I mean, and I don't know that I've ever said this out loud, but okay, folks, big, deep, dark secret about Chris. Uh, Yeah, for a few months, I was actually totally checking out the poly scene. (laughs) I was like, what's all this about, you know? Very, very similar. This is a couple, you know, a couple of years after I had uh, gotten out of Scientology, but you know, trying to play the field, trying to figure things out, trying to like exactly like you're talking about here, and on the I advice think... of others, you know, because yep. I had yep. been very relationship committed as a Scientologist. It had always been well, this was only going to be in a relationship that we were going to be intimate, et cetera, et cetera, and not necessarily that I had to get married. Of course, in the Sea Org, I did. But even coming out, I wasn't interested in one night stands and all that. And then I had friends going, "Oh no, dude, you need to, you need to, you need to live a little right now. That's what you need to be doing." And I took him up on that advice, and it was, and it, and I, you know, was looking here, looking there, looking everywhere else, and then of course finally found, you know, my current wife, and couldn't be happier. And and that was that was kind of it on the whole poly thing and all of that because it was okay. Now I've got this, but that was only after. Yeah. You know, kind of doing this whole exploratory thing and really right. honestly looking at what do I want, what do I not want? You know. Yeah. How do I well, know if I want this if I haven't even, you know, not necessarily fully tried it, but if I don't even contemplate the idea. Right. If I if I have all these walls up around me, then Yeah,
1: I know. How do you know peppermint's your favorite flavor if you've only ever had <laughs> vanilla? Yeah, and I am a, I'm a huge proponent of de-shamifying sex. And a lot of folks who um, come to me have grown up, uh, unfortunately, under purity culture. And so they have um, been told that it's a sin to masturbate. It's a sin to have sex outside of marriage. It's a sin to think about sex. Um, and so there can be almost like a disconnect between their actual body, and their uh, the, their mind, the way they think about sex or sexual pleasure. And so it's a time of um, exploration and learning and starting over. And like I say, de- de-shamifying. I want people to talk about sex. I want people to be able to explore sex in a safe way and learn about consent. What does consent mean? Because when you're a fundamentalist, your body actually isn't your own. Your your parents, I mean if you're a female, there's nothing more important than your womb and your vagina. And and if you're a male, you're not allowed to be uh you know, gratifying yourself at all sexually. So there's a lot of work to be done there.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Sea Org as well. Yeah, same things, same values. Yeah,
1: it's fundamentalism.
0: I was, was going to say, I'm really glad you did not run across a copy of Dianetics in your new age. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> of all the things to not get wrangled into, thank God that didn't happen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Boy. um, So, okay, so now having, you know, lived the life that you led, and now doing religious... Trauma counseling and helping people through this, and of course, being—you know—you've mentioned the atheist, agnostic, atheist. I, I think we're probably on the same page or similar pages on that, because really, the the answer is I don't know. Not—it's not a yes/no sort of question. Um, do you have any other views about religion? Or comments on organized religion, and let's let's be clear, we're talking about organized religion now, not religious belief or religious practice, but you know, groups, organizations, rules, etc. What are your What are your views on that? Are they Are they negative because of the work that you do, or are you able to obtain, uh, you know, sort of keep an objective view about it, or how do you look at that stuff?
1: Um. I pretty much have nothing good to say about religion because I feel like it hijacks people. um, It hijacks their ability to think for themselves. I don't feel like, so now I would also call myself a a humanist, secular humanist. That's how I prefer to um, be identified. I am capable of making my own decisions. (laughs) Yeah, I don't need anyone's religion to tell me what is right and what is wrong. I know that if I'm, if I'm doing an action and it's hurting somebody, you know, there's a good chance it's wrong. Uh, otherwise I'm free to behave as I see fit. If I'm not hurting myself
0: and not hurting other people. Sure. But what about with other people? I mean, that, that, that's, that's awesome for, you know, I, I agree with you. Uh, Mm Because I lead my life from a very similar point of view in terms Mm -hmm. of religion. And I am the first to say I am not unbiased on the topic. I have (laughs) a whole lot of negative things to say about organized religion. Um, Mm -hmm. I differentiate that from religious belief and religious practice for a reason. Because the word religion gets a little confusing to people because they conflate these three things, right? I'm not so... What about religious belief on the part of others? Do you think it's, do you think it can be helpful in any way?
1: Um, the only way that I can see it or have experienced it really as being helpful is people who have been, who have, um, let's, how can I say this? I do not want to be offending people. Sometimes people um, when they are dealing with drug and alcohol addiction, you'll find a lot of churches host uh, 12-step groups Mm -hmm. And a lot of people end up just swapping their addiction from the substance to the religion Um, And likewise some folks uh, have been so terribly traumatized in their own growing up years with nothing to do with religion They've had um, abusive parents or whatever and they can have real mental health struggles and they will grasp at religion and it can become very important to them. And some of them, it's actually the only thing keeping them from killing themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I don't talk to people who are happy in their religion and try and convince them out of it. I would never do that because it was very painful for me when i divorced religion it was painful i don't want other people to have to go through that kind of pain People have to do things on their own timing when they're ready to do them. So I'm, if they're all inside the church, I'm going to let them be happy in the church. I'm, I'm outside the church. I got my hands underneath to catch the ones that fall through the, you know, there's a hole under the welcome mat or whatever. You're not allowed in the church anymore because you're gay or we don't like this or that about you or you're just having so many doubts you can't keep going anymore those are the people who are going to come and find me i'm not interested in in robbing anyone of their faith or destroying their faith
0: good good point i um i thought that was a really good point you made about the transference of addiction Mm -hmm. and i and i noted it because that was actually the area where it first dawned on me in my anti-religion stance years ago right it bounced out of scientology you know fuck religion Um, where I started considering, wait a second, there's something going on here that is, that is real, that is very raw, very emotional for the person. Um, and that I can't just go in and say, you know, oh, well, that's just stupid. You just shouldn't have that belief. I'm talking about addicts now. I'm talking about 12 step guys. I'm talking about drugs. I'm talking about criminals, people in prison who get, who catch Jesus, right. Or, or Islam for that matter or anything else, um, when they glom onto or, or, or take hold of or accept or however, you know, there's lots of words we could use for this. But when they accept or take on this belief set and, uh, and practice and start, you know, making this part of their life, then you see positive social behavioral changes, They're not drinking so much anymore. They're not doing the Coke anymore. They're out of prison and they're not leading the criminal life because Jesus says not to. Mm -hmm. And I have to acknowledge that for what it is and not try to lay my own conscious projection onto that. Well, I wouldn't have to do that. So therefore, they shouldn't have to do that, right? And it was only when I realized for myself, quite certainly, oh, wow, that's what's happening when I see... You know, atheists, for example, make the argument all the time, well, I can be moral without God, good without God, right? Great! That's great for you. But they, unfortunately, I think unfairly extend that or project that out to everybody. And in the case of these criminals or recovering addicts or people who are in those situations, when you see positive social behavioral changes as a direct result of that religious conversion, I have to step back and go, I ain't touching that. I'm not gonna- I'd I'd
1: certainly rather have somebody sitting in a pew than out murdering or abusing uh, another person. However, I feel like this is an area where humanists have dropped the ball or just not been able to catch up yet. If that same, person who's struggling with addiction um could actually see their own worth and um how much better their life could be um that has nothing to do with jesus or god or anything you as a human being you have worth and dignity and value you are are worthy of a life that is meaningful and joyful is is smoking whatever you're smoking or drinking whatever you're drinking is that in alignment with that are you are you actually getting the most you can out of life because you're capable of doing it i i frankly never send uh people to 12-step programs i always encourage people um, to look into smart recovery and so you're if there's any of your viewers or listeners they can look it up SmartRecovery.org, and it uh
0: is not a twelve-step based program. Cool, cool. Yeah, I was because um, you want you because because when you said the thing about transferring addiction, I thought to myself, oh, that's a good point because maybe that's what actually is going on there. But I had to t- I had to bring it up because I want to temper that against this the positive social behavior as an outcome.
1: Well, and you know, you know, you know there are there's questions too that. Um, like a therapist might ask to determine if someone has uh, an addiction or to, to something. And actually, you just you have to change very little in those questions to determine if a person is struggling with a religious addiction. But the mm-hmm. big problem with religion and people becoming religious and adopting it is that So, yeah, they then have a great social and supportive um, community circle inside the walls of that church or inside only people who believe that way. It's suddenly us and them. And the people that have the most value are the people who believe what you believe. You know, you might give so many chances to an outsider, or your life becomes about trying to witness to them. You have to bring them into the fold. You can't just have a relationship with someone because they're a decent human being. There's always an
0: agenda. Yeah, That's a big that was, problem that I have with relationships. Yeah, that's for sure. I uh, no argument here. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, and 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 I think you're right in terms of drop balls, humanists, whatever. Because humanist is the only label I have ever had, ever in my whole life. As I sit here right now, it's the only one I like. That, that I that I'm proud to have. I am a humanist. Yes, that is what I am. Right. I'm. I got no qualms about saying that. Uh, you know, atheists are the, the bottom rung of the dung of the catfish of the bottom dwelling, scum sucking low life. You know, people think more highly of terrorists than they do atheists in America by survey in some areas. So, you know, you kind of, gee, I don't know if I can say that one, but humanist, yes, okay, good. Well, we'll, we'll go. Well, and
1: yet, you know, for people, for I can only speak for Christians because that's what I was. Calling someone a humanist, and particularly a secular humanist, is a is a tremendous slur. It's a oh, yes. bad name that you're calling someone. So for me to be able to publicly, happily declare myself a secular humanist, that's interesting. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, great change there. Great change. Well, and me too. I mean, as a former Scientologist, you know, I mean, it was... It was my way or the highway, baby. This is how it is. Elron Ron Hubbard's got the truth. Oh and you, and you need to get some of it.
1: <laughs> well, and the funny thing is, it's everyone is fine in their own group, but they'll look at your group and go, whoa, well, those people are nuts. They're just freaking nuts. And, and of course, you're in your group looking at them going, well, I'm the only one with the truth. So, you know, those people don't have a clue. Ugh.
0: Exactly. It's just exhausting. But that is exactly the kind of certainty that we were talking about earlier. That's the kind that we could do without, you know, because it doesn't help. It just doesn't help. It doesn't help you. doesn't help the people around you, you know. I would
1: much rather spend time in the company of someone who is curious than someone who is certain. And there's such a welcoming thing about curiosity and being with someone who is curious because I'm not worried they're going to be beating me over the head with you know whatever they're certain about um instead maybe they have room for me to ask my
0: questions too yeah exactly exactly (laughs) well Here's one last thing I am curious about, and then maybe we'll move toward wrapping up. This has been an interesting talk. I wanted to ask, though, about getting firmly back onto this religious trauma counseling and and recovery from that. Um, So you've been doing this for a while. Treated a lot of people, dealt with a lot of people. Um, What kind of advice could you give to anyone out there, believe it or not, you know, just, just, just humanist advice, I suppose, in terms of um, how to either avoid or deal with, you know, extremist situations or, you know, like this religious trauma specifically, religious trauma, let's, let's, let's just quantify it that way, how, how should people deal with that when they run into it with friends or family?
1: when we're firmly entrenched in our ideology, okay? And so we have a really strong attachment to our belief. Um, it's it's very hard to love people outside of that or to accept um, people who are not part of that. So if you find that, if you're following an ideology that doesn't allow you to love someone else simply because they're not, part of your group, that's an indication that you uh, then potentially have developed, have fallen into extremist um, thinking or in with an extremist group. Pardon me. And again, for people who are on the other side of it, um, just the best bet is to try and keep those doors of communication open as long as they can, as well as they can. I, I found for myself but also for some clients that i've worked with we start to put um like even our our ability to love ourselves also uh is in jeopardy once we once we leave the religion then we think well now i'm not even worth being loved so this is this is something that people need to um to think about you are worthy of being loved. Whoever you are, I want you to love yourself. And if you're struggling with that, I want you to see a therapist because it's serious. Wow. Conditions for self-love. That's it. Conditions. Yeah.
0: Oh, there we go. Well, thank you for that. I think that is very, very good advice. I, I Especially the self-love part. <laughs> <laughs> because we do. We have a real problem with that. You know? It's funny. Americans... You know, I, th- I know we're viewed as very egotistical, and it's not—it's not a completely unwarranted point of view. And yet, at the same time, so much of it is bluster on our parts because there is so much self-doubt, even self-loathing, in this country, and it's a real divide because you have people who are who are. Um, <sighs> Well, you just got a lot of different people here. That's all I can say about it, actually. But they have this, you know. We fight about this stuff, these, these this, this identity stuff, and unfortunately, religion ends up playing a, a fairly significant role in it um, here in the states, uh, around the world, you know. And um, and we've got to we've got to deal with this better. Whether we're, you know, whether, is it going to go away tomorrow? No. Is religion going to go away in 100 years? No, it's not. And anybody who's got some fantasy that it is, it's not. So it's just, it's not in our nature to not think that way. And as Mm -hmm. long as we're human, that's how things are going to be. So we're going to have to figure out how to get along with each other. Both the believers and the non-believers, you know?
1: Yes. I feel like um, there definitely is some hope and some movement in that direction. When I look at my daughter's generation, so they're um, 22 and 24. I cannot believe I have kids that old. Um, But they are so much more accepting of people who are different than they are. Mm-hmm. than I think people were, even in my generation, let alone my parents' um, generation. So I do have some, uh, some hope and encouragement from this um, young and up-and-coming generation.
0: Yeah, me too. Me too. It's uh, I definitely am not that generation anymore. It's funny the difference that you notice as you get older and you start, like, not caring so much who the hot pop singers are. You don't really care anymore about like, like I go through my newsfeed and I'm just like, yeah, I don't know who that person is breaking up with that other person. I have no idea what that's it's, about.
1: It's the worst when you go to the emergency department and all the doctors look so young and you're like, can I please have a doctor with some experience? Because I'm sure you're only 20. Like <laughs> Right. Oh, fun times.
0: Exactly, exactly. Good times. Well, Janice, how do people contact you? I'll put links in our show notes here to your website. Is there any other preferred mode of contact if people want to reach out to you?
1: Sure, they can find me on Twitter. I'm at divorce religion, all one word, and I'm also at Wise underscore counselor. Counselor has two L's. That's the Canadian way to spell it at wise underscore counselor. And I have just finished uh, putting up a new website. So it's uh, divorcingreligion.com. And there is a the hyphen in between divorcing and religion. Um, and you can see some of the things that I have to offer there. I'm really interested in uh, offering support groups for people who have come out of fundamentalist backgrounds. And so I've got a support group for women who've left, men who've left, LGBTQ plus community, ex-clergy. I really want to get the word out there. Uh, And the, the website is brand new. And so they can reach me on that website as well.
0: Beautiful. Excellent. Well, folks, check it out. And, um, and if you're, you know, you want some help in that area, I think Janice is exactly the kind of person you're looking for, because you need compassion, understanding, and um, that's what you need. <laughs> and that's what she's got in abundance.
1: <laughs> if, I, if I may, I'd like to recommend a book that was uh, so helpful for me, and I'm sure what? you and a lot of your readers have heard of it. It's called Leaving the Fold. And it's by mm-hmm. Dr. Marlene Winnell. And um, she is a friend and a mentor to me. And she is someone who helped to change my life.
0: Awesome. All right, folks. Well, we'll get links to this stuff, like I said, in the show notes here. So, uh, Janice, thank you very much for taking the time to be on my show. I really do appreciate it.
1: This was so much fun. Let's do it again.
0: <laughs> I am sure we will. I am sure we will. There's a lot. There's still a ton of stuff we have not gone over here at all that I could ask you about. And various um specific details about dealing with religious trauma and also specific types of religious trauma because you know your christians are might be a little bit different from your catholics might be a little bit different from your islam etc you know from uh, from uh, all of that so anyway mm-hmm. uh, from scientology so good times. All right, folks, any uh, questions, comments, feedback, go ahead and leave it in the comment section on YouTube and uh, or at sensiblyspeaking.com. And of course, if you are enjoying the show, enjoying the channel and, and what I'm putting out here and you find it entertaining, informative, and educational, then please consider supporting this show through Patreon. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.